In 2016, the Lord took our church through something of a missions revolution. Most of you were here, you remember it. It came quite unforeseen, it caught me rather by surprise. Several factors converged that year to significantly alter the way that we think about and fund and do international missions. And one of those factors was that in the spring in my office, I was thumbing through my bookshelf and I stumbled upon a CD that I had picked up at a conference some five years earlier, but had never opened it and never listened to. On it was a collection of mission sermons by John Piper that pierced me to the heart and lit a fire in me for the cause of global missions in the local church. Most of the sermons were from the annual missions conferences that are held at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, where Piper pastored for 33 years. And although each of the sermons, there were about 15 or so on this CD, although each of them were unique, there were common threads that ran throughout. And one of those threads is that real missions is dangerous because all of the easy places in the world have already been reached. The only unreached peoples that remain are those who live in closed countries and places that are hostile to the gospel. And over and over again in these sermons, Piper told his church and me that lives devoted to safety and security and comfort would never get the job done and would never complete the mission of Christ to take the gospel to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and that Christ was calling churches, their church and our church, and that he was calling Christians, his believers in his congregation, and me, and you, to risk it all and to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ and the unreached peoples of the world. Now, it was one of these sermons that Piper preached in one of those sermons, he made a remark that has stayed with me, and it, and it came rising to my mind as I was writing this message. It's a lengthy quote, but it's so good, I hope you'll forgive me. In 1996, he was preaching to college students at Wheaton College, and he said this, the price of God's global mission is suffering, and the volatility in the world today against the church is not decreasing. It is increasing, especially among the groups that need the gospel. There is no such thing as a closed country. That notion has no root or warrant in the Bible, and it would have been unintelligible to the Apostle Paul, who laid down his life in every city he visited. I remember one Sunday when our church was focusing on the suffering church, and many across the nation were involved. We saw videos or heard stories about places like the Sudan where the Muslim regime was systematically ostracizing, positioning, and starving Christians so that there were about 500 martyrs a day in Sudan. In light of this, I got very tired of candidates for staff positions in our inner city church asking, will our children be safe? I've grown tired of such American priorities infecting the mission of the church. Whoever said that your children will be safe in the call of God? Oh, that we might see a reversal of our self-centered priorities. They seem to be woven into the very fabric of our consumer culture. 
move toward comfort, toward security, toward ease, toward safety, and away from stress, and away from trouble, and away from danger, it ought to be exactly the opposite. It was Jesus himself who said, he who would come after me, let him take up his cross and die. It's the absorption of a consumer, comfort, ease culture in the church, and it creates weak ministries and churches in which safe, secure, nice things are done for each other. And safe excursions are made to help save some others. But oh, we won't live there. And we won't stay there. Not even in America, not to mention Saudi Arabia. Golgotha is not a suburb of Jerusalem. Let us go with him outside the gate and suffer with him and bear his reproach, says Hebrews 13, 13, end quote. He's right, you know. I I know that it is hard to swallow and it It's uncomfortable and it doesn't rest well on our hearts and our minds. We want our children to be safe. But he's absolutely right. Safe is not the standard of Christian discipleship. The call of Christ is not follow me so long as it's safe. Follow me so long as your children are safe. The call of Christ is come and die, period, full stop. There is no way around it. Jesus was clear and unambiguous when it comes to suffering as the cost of discipleship. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Try as I might, and I have tried. I cannot reconcile those words with my suburban Bible Belt Christianity. What have I ever denied myself in the pursuit of Christ? What cross have I taken up? How have I lost my life for the sake of Christ and the gospel? And I'll be honest with you. A primary reason why you see my name on the Cuba mission list every year is because although Cuba is one of the safer, quote-unquote, closed countries in the world today, there is a risk factor involved. And it's just about the only time in my life when I risk anything for Jesus. The risk is minimal, but it's still a risk. And you feel it every time you pass through customs and they ask you why you've come. And you feel it every time they pull aside one of your team members and they question them. And you feel it every time customs officials show up at your church that you're working at and they check on what you're doing. And you feel it every time you're made aware that try as you might to be discreet and to fly under the radar, the government always seems to know who you are and where you're working and what you're doing and where you'll be. One of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons I go to Cuba is because how can I preach texts like this if I never risk anything for the cause of Christ? As I look at my life, I feel and I am extraordinarily blessed. 
but how can I be sure that I'm not one who has gained the whole world and yet forfeited my soul? How can you be sure? How can I be sure that I'm not one who has gathered to myself all of the ease and the safety and the comfort that money will buy and that's all I'll ever have? How else can I be sure if I never risk my life? How can I preach on the absolute sovereignty of God over life and death and suffering if I never step foot out of my comfortable suburban home and my comfortable suburban life and step out in faith on the solid yet invisible rock of God's sovereignty? We need a different view of discipleship than what we have imbibed in our culture. We need one informed more by the word of Christ than by the American dream. And that's why we need passages like this which call us out. They call us out of our safe and comfortable and suburban lives into a dangerous unknown armed only with the promise that the hairs of our head are numbered and we're more valuable than many sparrows. In other words, nothing can happen to me or to you in the cause of Christ that has not been predestined from the foundations of the world for God's eternal glory and our everlasting joy. If you step out, you cannot fail. If you live, you gain. If you suffer, you gain. If you die, you gain even more. There's no failure. Suffering is the cost of discipleship because it is the means by which the world will be won for Christ. Because by our living and suffering and dying in the cause of the gospel, we show that Jesus is more glorious and is more to be treasured than all of the safety and the comfort of this life. And Jesus is seen to be the all-glorious and all-satisfying Redeemer that He is. Our willing Even joyful suffering adorns the gospel with the aroma of authenticity. It shows that we really believe the gospel that we preach. Suffering as the cost of discipleship is a dominant theme in Mark's gospel because Mark is writing to a suffering church, a persecuted church in Rome during the Neronian persecutions in the mid-60s. And over and over and over again, Mark reminds his church that this is what Jesus is promising. This is what he did promise. What you are experiencing, you who are getting covered in tar and, and strung up on a pole and lit on fire to light up Nero's gardens, and you that are getting tossed out to the wild beasts in the Circus Maximus, you who are being betrayed by your brothers and your sisters and your parents and your children, this is that you are experiencing precisely what Jesus promised you. This is Jesus' plan, and it will all be worth it for those who persevere because he who promised is faithful. And so we come to Mark 6. And in Mark 6, the evangelist takes three events. Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, the sending out of the twelve, and the death of John the Baptist at the hands of Herod. And he brings them together 
in order to drive this point home. The tie that binds all three of these passages together is the presence of the disciples. They see all of these. Mark 6.1. Mark is careful to state that the disciples went with Jesus to Nazareth and they witnessed his rejection there. 6.11. Jesus sent out the disciples who themselves would face rejection. And then... Mark places the account of the death of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve, verses 7 to 13, and their return in verse 30, forcing us to see John's death as a picture of what happens when the disciples of Christ come face to face with the evil of this world. So this morning, we're going to look at each of these three events, and we're going to see what each has to teach us about the cost of discipleship. We'll begin with Jesus' rejection in his hometown of Nazareth, beginning in verse 1. He went away from there and began, or came rather, to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. And he went about among the villages, teaching. Nazareth was an obscure town of no more than 500 people, about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, which is where Jesus likely was located last week in the second half of Mark chapter 5, when he healed the woman with the flow of blood and raised from the dead Jairus' daughter. This was not the first time that Jesus had come back to his hometown since his baptism. Both Matthew, Matthew 4.13, And Luke, Luke 4, 16 to 30, record an earlier visit to Nazareth when Jesus also preached in the synagogue, also was rejected by the people who at that time tried to throw him off a cliff. This now second visit is also recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 13, which is the reason we know that this visit is not the same thing as that first visit. And now it is perhaps a year or more later that Jesus has been traveling throughout Galilee, healing the sick, casting out demons, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' reception evidently is no better this time around than it was the first. Again, he preaches in the synagogue. Again, his teaching astounds the people. And again, their astonishment turns to offense. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? In other words, Jesus was known to the crowds in Nazareth as was his entire family. He had grown up there from the time he was a young boy. And he had remained there plying his trade until about the age of 30 when he left to go out to John in the Jordan River area. And that seems to have been the problem here. He had seemed so ordinary. 
He had no formal rabbinical education. He had shown no sign of possessing supernatural abilities. And yet here he was, preaching the word with unparalleled wisdom and performing miraculous works left and right, and they didn't know what to make of him. When they asked, where did this man get these things, the conclusion they quite obviously did not reach was from God, or else they wouldn't have been so offended. But if not from God, from where? It seems, therefore, that they had drawn the same conclusion as had the scribes from Jerusalem in Mark 3.22. If he's not empowered by God, he must be empowered by Beelzebub, that is Satan. Well, Jesus' response is to quote a popular aphorism. He says it a number of times throughout the Gospels. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And then Mark adds that Jesus could do no mighty work there except to heal a few who were sick and that he marveled at their unbelief. Now, a word is in order about verse 5. It's strange. We're, we're not comfortable talking about what Jesus can't do. That doesn't seem right to us. Jesus' power, we know, is not limited by anything, not least of which is unbelief, or else none of us would be saved. If that were true, none of us would be in a state of grace, for Jesus must overrule and overcome the unbelief of sinners when he causes us to be born again. So unbelief does not restrict his abilities. It does not limit his sovereignty. So what's going on here? Well, there's several ways to work this out. Some commentators say that Mark's statement is a reflection on Jesus' humanity. In other words, he's limiting himself Uh, In the face of unbelief, others say it's not so much a question of what he couldn't do, but as what he wouldn't do. Others view it as an act of grace. In other words, performing more signs would have simply increased their guilt. None of those really deal sufficiently with the text, though. Mark doesn't say Jesus wouldn't do any signs because of their unbelief. He says Jesus couldn't do any signs because of their unbelief. So I suggest to you that Jesus was limited not by their unbelief, but by the will of the Father, who had determined that Nazareth would receive no more signs, like it's stated in Luke eleven twenty nine, 29, for instance. And Jesus was always submitted to the Father's will. And so he's limited by the Father, saying that what has been said and what has been done in Nazareth is sufficient for their faith. It is sufficient ground for their faith. And just like he did in another town of Galilee later, he'll say, no more sign will be performed here, except for the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection. As an aside, by the way, it would be a beneficial exercise for you to meditate upon the fact that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Jesus found their unbelief unbelievable. So what is the truth about discipleship to be learned from these first six verses? Well, it's the same truth that the disciples learned as they watched these events unfold in Nazareth. As a disciple of Jesus, you will suffer rejection by those who are closest to you. Your family, your friends, 
those with whom you grew up, they will take offense at you. They will not believe the change that has been wrought in you has been wrought by God. They will think that you're pulling the wool over their eyes. They'll think that you're acting holier than thou. They will take some offense at you. They will not believe that God has radically transformed your life. The servant is not greater than his master, John 15, 20. If they rejected Christ, they will reject his followers also. And some of you have already experienced this. Others of us have not yet. Are you ready for it? Are are you ready to suffer rejection from those from whom you most wanted approval? That's really, really difficult for some sons, for instance, who desperately want their dad's approval, but their dad's an unbeliever and doesn't understand why they would pack up and go to the mission field. But this is the cost of discipleship. If you would follow Christ, you must love the praise of God more than the praise of men. This is why Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Heart check time, suburban Christians, soccer moms, coach dads, heart check time. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So sometimes the cross we bear is the cross of rejection by those closest to us. And in many parts of the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ endure a cost of following Christ that is being disowned by their family. In some nations, the family feels honor-bound to kill those who convert to Jesus. Heart check time. Would you be willing to pay that price? If your mom or dad said they'd never talk to you anymore? If the friends that you grew up with no longer wanted to hang with you and instead scorned you and derided you, made fun of you, you will suffer rejection because there are members of your family who are of the world and the world hates Jesus. Some of you will suffer that this week upcoming as you sit down with them over Thanksgiving and they do not understand your way of life and they do not share your worldview. You will suffer rejection. The second event which Mark records in order to highlight the cost of discipleship is the sending out of the 12 to minister throughout the villages of Galilee. So we pick up at verse 7. And he called the 12 And he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. 
And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the disciples have been with Jesus for some time now, maybe as long as a year. And the time has come to send them out, to kick them out of the nest a little, as it were, and to send them forth to extend Jesus' ministry throughout the region of Galilee. So Jesus called them, he sent them, he commissioned them to be his apostolic representatives. And he paired them up two by two, probably for mutual encouragement and accountability, and probably because it's on the testimony of two or three witnesses that every matter is confirmed. It's a good missional principle still. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits and the power to heal the sick. And he sent them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Because we read in verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that men should repent. And he gave them rather strange instructions as to what they could bring and what they could not bring. They could take a staff, sandals, and one tunic. They could not take bread, a bag, money, or an extra tunic. Why? Well, intriguing reasons have been suggested. For instance, some have pointed out that the four items they were permitted to take, tunic, belt, sandal, staff, are identical to the items that God instructed the Israelites to take with them on their exodus from Egypt on the night of the Passover. In other words, it could be that Jesus is sort of dressing them up as an object lesson to the Jewish towns to which they will go, proclaiming a message that Christ, or in Christ rather, is the second and better exodus and simultaneously teaching the disciples that they need to be free from excess burdens in the service of Christ, as free as were the Israelites in the Exodus. And that could be it, but it's far from clear that that's what Jesus has in mind. I think the answer is far simpler. What I think is clear is that Jesus is commanding his disciples to live simply, in dependence upon God's provision rather than their own. Now, I want to be careful here. Because this is a specific instruction to specific people for a specific mission. It is not a paradigm for all future ministry in the church. In other words, you should not infer from this passage that when you go on a mission trip, you should not pack a change of clothes. In other words, don't take Larry Lewis's advice on how to wear the same pair of underwear six days in a row. But there is an underlying principle here that can be drawn out of these instructions, and it does have application to us today. Jesus does not want his disciples, any of them, burdened by excess baggage. And he does not want them to live for comfort. This is why he instructs them in verse 10 to stay in the same house during the entirety of their ministry in a particular town. They They should partake of the hospitality that is freely offered them and not despise it and move on to a bigger and better opportunity if a more luxurious offer comes along. Why? Because they're not in it for the comfort. Comfort is not the aim of discipleship. The advance of the kingdom is. So here's the second truth regarding the cost of discipleship. If you would follow Christ... You must love the kingdom of Christ more than the comforts of this world. If your goal in life is to accumulate as much wealth, as much luxury, as many assets as possible, you simply cannot follow Jesus who has nowhere to lay his head. 
Jesus calls his disciples to live simply, contentedly, and unencumbered by excess luxury or wealth. In the cause of Christ, there will be times when you will be called to suffer deprivation. Now again, I'm not saying that Jesus' instructions here form the paradigm for all of his followers in all instances and circumstances. That's clearly not the case. But all of his disciples, all of us this morning, are called the sacrifice in the service of love. And what is it that we are called to sacrifice? We are called to deprive ourselves of comfort in the service of others and in the service of the kingdom. It may look like getting up and getting dressed and going to help a brother in need when it's already been a long day and you're already in for the night and you just want to lay down and rest. It may be foregoing some luxury item for which you have been saving because someone in the church has a real need that has arisen. It may be sacrificing a week of your vacation time to go spread the gospel on some foreign soil. It may be picking up your life here and transplanting it into a place where it is far less comfortable in order to spread the gospel. Whatever it is, a disciple of Jesus willingly, catch this, and joyfully sacrifices comfort knowing that the Lord is faithful and that whatever is lost will be regained a hundred times in God's manifold blessings. And that really is the paradox of Christian discipleship, isn't it? Those who deprive themselves of earthly comforts in the pursuit of Christ and his kingdom find that it really was no sacrifice at all because of the joy and the blessing that God so abundantly bestows upon them. Those who end up losing their life find out that they actually gain it. But there is no doubt that at the point of losing, it feels like deprivation. Yet all loss in the Christian life is turned to gain. All of it. And how much you risk is the degree to which you believe that. You will suffer rejection, but you will gain the acceptance of God. You will suffer deprivation, but you will gain everlasting joy. And you will suffer persecution and death, but you will gain life eternal. And that's the point of the last passage. The placement of the account of John the Baptist's death between the sending out of the twelve and their return, verse 30, makes it plain that John's death is meant to be understood within the context of discipleship as well. Those who would follow Christ must understand that this is what happens when righteousness confronts wickedness within the halls of power. Evidently, Jesus' ministry and that of his disciples had attracted the attention of Herod who was the Tetrarch of Galilee. Now, there were a lot of rumors swirling around, and popular opinions regarding the identity of Jesus were mixed, but Herod's guilty conscience has him convinced that Jesus is really John the Baptist back from the dead. Pick up at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, heard of the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. 
But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. The Herod in question is Herod Antipas, who is the lesser-known son of Herod the Great, who reigned by Rome's permission as king over Judea from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Herod the Great was the King Herod who ordered the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. All right, trying to sort out Herod's family history is a dark and difficult affair. He had ten wives and nine sons, three of whom he executed. But for our purposes, you need to know that when Herod the Great died, his kingdom, as it were, was divided into parcels, and one of them was given to his son Antipas, who ruled over the region of Galilee. Now, John the Baptist had come across Herod's radar when he began speaking out publicly against Herod's unlawful and adulterous marriage to Herodias, who had been his brother Philip's wife. Now, at the instigation of Herodias, Herod sent soldiers to seize and to bind John and to throw him in prison. That did not satisfy Herod's ladder-climbing wife, who wanted John dead. Herod, however, feared John, and not knowing exactly what to make of him, but sensing that he was a righteous man and a prophet, he protected John. He feared God's judgment if he harmed him, and furthermore, evidently, he was intrigued by him. It says that he would hear him gladly, yet when he heard him, he was perplexed, convicted. But Herodias would not let the matter go with John just being in prison, and eventually her opportunity came. Herod threw a great banquet for his birthday at his desert fortress, a palace called Machairus, where John evidently was being held in the dungeon. Machairus was built on a high ridge overlooking the Dead Sea, surrounded by thick walls and towers 240 feet high. The remains of the fortress can still be visited today, as can the dungeon with its iron hooks and chains, where John evidently had been located. 
Everybody who was anybody was there, nobles, military leaders, the elite of Galilee, and they were well into the evening and probably well into the wine when Herodias's daughter, we know her name was Salome, Herodias's daughter by her first husband, Philip, whom she left in order to shack up with Herod, she came in and danced for the men. Uh, this was not customary. Noble women did not dance. They're probably Baptists. <laughs> Temple, or rather court prostitutes, did the dancing. So why is this noble woman dancing now? Well, it seems that Salome was sent in by her mother, who had a plan in mind. Mark leaves the nature of Salome's dance to our imagination, but it's, it's not difficult to guess the manner of performance it was to elicit such a response from the drunken Herod, who made a rash vow that he soon regretted. When asked what she wanted in return for her provocative performance, Salome consults with her mother, who is ready with an answer. She's been scheming to get things to this point all along. I want the head of John the Baptist. Salome then comes back into the court and in the presence of all the guests, so as to put pressure on Herod, she tells her stepfather, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Well, what could Herod do by that point? I mean, certainly not the right thing. So in order to save face before his guests, he sent his executioner at once, who beheaded John in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to Salome, who took it to her mother. And then Mark tells us that John's disciples heard of it, and they came and they removed John's body and gave it a proper burial. What's the point? I mean, Mark didn't have to include this in his gospel, so what's the point? I think the truth to be gleaned from this sordid affair is that in the cause of Christ, you will suffer persecution and maybe even death because of the message that you bear. Therefore, if you would follow Jesus, you must love Christ more than you love life. While I was writing this sermon, I was reminded of the events of a year ago, right after the presidential election last last December, when um, many Southern Baptist leaders and prominent pastors in the convention were calling for the removal of Russell Moore as the president of the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, what, you ask, was Russell Moore's crime? What had he done wrong? Well, he had repeatedly spoken out during the course of the presidential campaign against then-candidate Trump, um, publicly calling him morally unfit for leadership due to his serial adultery, unrepentant lechery, and his manifest disregard for the truth. Now, Lest you think I'm trying to make a political statement, I want to throw in there for myself and for Russell Moore, he also considered Clinton morally unfit for leadership. His denouncement of Trump was not an endorsement of Clinton, but it was rather out of a concern that Christians seemed willing to gloss over his obvious character deficit simply because he ran for the right party. Well, when Donald Trump surprised everyone and won the election, many powerful pastors who had publicly endorsed candidate Trump, he had spoken in their churches and so on and so forth, 
They turned on Russell Moore, saying that because he had been a vocal opponent of Trump's candidacy, he would then be excluded from the White House and would no longer have, quote, a seat at the table. Well, in the midst of all of this furor, most of it taking place on social media, a surge of support rose for Russell Moore from mostly younger evangelicals. And Jason Meyer, who had been a student of Russell Moore's at Southern Seminary and has since taken over the pulpit at uh, Bethlehem Baptist, where Piper had recently retired, I think he captured the issue perfectly in one tweet. He wrote, I stand with Moore because John the Baptist would rather lose his head than lose his prophetic voice in order to gain a seat at Herod's table. And that really is the issue, isn't it? Disciples of Jesus, you and I are called to be prophets in this world, speaking the truth no matter the consequences. That's what John the Baptist was doing in calling out Herod for his adulterous marriage. That's what the disciples were doing in proclaiming that men should repent. And that's what we need to be doing no matter the cost. We are not called to be popular, and we are not called to have a seat at the table in the White House. We are called to be prophets who speak the word of Christ, even if it costs us our head. So if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you will suffer persecution, which means that you better love Jesus more than you love your life, or you will trade Christ in order to save your life, or your position, or your power, or your comfort. Now, I began this morning with Piper, and I'll end with Piper. For 30 years now, Piper has been calling the members of his own congregation, as well as college students and Christians from all over America, not to waste their life pursuing the American dream, but rather to risk their life in the cause of world missions. Well, you might ask, what happens when someone actually answers that call, packs up their family, goes overseas, and dies? Well, four years ago, that happened when a 33-year-old man named Ronnie Smith was shot and killed in Benghazi, Libya. Now, what, you may ask, was Ronnie Smith doing in one of the most dangerous places on earth just a year after the infamous attack on the American consulate, which claimed the life of four Americans, including the American ambassador? Well, he was losing his life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And he was doing it because he had heard a sermon. Piper responded to news of Smith's death in this article, which was published on the Desiring God website, and with this I'll close. Ronnie Smith was shot and killed in Benghazi, Libya on Thursday. He was 33. He was a husband and father. The leaders of his home church had given me permission to respond to his death publicly and carefully. One of the reasons I want to respond is because Ronnie wrote to us at Desiring God last year and told us that one of my messages was significant in leading him and his family to go to Libya. And now Anita is a widow and his son Hosea has lost his father. How do I feel about sharing in the cause of his going to death? I came to tears this morning praying for Anita and Hosea. Weep with those who weep was not a command in that moment. 
It was a sorrow rolling over me. I remember being 33. That's how old I was when God called me to the pastorate. I started my ministry at the age Ronnie's ministry ended and Jesus's. After sorrow and sympathy, my response was and is prayer. Lord, give Anita great faith. Help her to weep, but not as those who have no hope. Make that little fellow proud of his daddy. May he grow up thrilled to be in the bloodline of such a man. May they live on the glories of Romans 8, that the groanings of this fallen world and the rock-solid assurance that though we are being killed all day long, nevertheless, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Then I am sobered. Ronnie is not the first person who has died doing what I have encouraged him to do, and he won't be the last. If I thought death were the worst thing that could happen to a person, I would be overwhelmed with regret. But the whole point of Ronnie's life is that there is something worse than death. So he was willing to risk his own life to rescue others from something far worse. And he could risk his own life because he knew his own risking and dying would work for him an eternal weight of glory. And he knew God was able to meet every need of his wife and son. We are not playing games. When we preach that risk is right, I know what I am doing. When I say God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, especially in suffering, I know what suffering may mean. When I say, fear not, you can only be killed, I take seriously the words of Jesus. Some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. Finally, I call thousands of you to take Ronnie's place. They will not kill us fast enough. Let the replacements flood the world. We do not seek death. We seek the everlasting joy of the world, including our enemies. If they kill us while we love them, we are in good company. Jesus did not call us to ease or safety. He called us to love for the sake of his name. Everywhere, among all peoples. Anita and Hosea, I love you, and I am sorry, so sorry for your loss. I admire you and Ronnie profoundly. Hold fast to this. God has not destined you or Ronnie for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. We are not playing games. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. When he says, come and die, those are not words that we just post up on Sunday school classrooms and look at every week. So will you take Ronnie's place? Will I? This is the cost of discipleship. Rejection, deprivation, and persecution. Are you willing to pay it? 
because you know the joy that is marked out for you. This is the call of this text, and this is the call of Christ today. Is there room left on the Cuba list? You can still go to Cuba. Will you? You can still go to Haiti next year. Will you? You should ask yourself this question. This is how we're going to close this service. We're not going to sing. We're not going to stand. We're going to sit here and we're going to let the silence of the call of Christ weigh heavy upon you as I ask you a question and myself, a question that I think Jesus would have us to ask. What have I risked because I believe that Jesus is more to be treasured than life and comfort and safety and ease. And if you can't think of anything, then I think you ought to ask the question, do you really believe that Jesus is more to be valued and treasured than life, comfort, ease, and the safety and the security of our middle America suburban life.